0: Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church, Owasso, Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. All right, why don't we gather back to our seats? Uh, well, good morning, my name is Caleb, and um, I get to uh, be with you all and, and preach through the most exciting passage in, P- in Hebrews for us. Um, I work at the University of Tulsa with our college ministry called RUF. Um, I would love to meet you if I haven't done so yet. Um, my, my family have been coming here for about a year and a half. It's always good to have the opportunity to come up here before y'all. Let's stand and and read our passage as we continue on through this wonderful book. We're picking up at the end of chapter 5 and going through about halfway through the 6th chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the reading of God's Word. You can be seated. Let me pray for us. Father and Son, Holy Spirit, We thank you for your love for one another and for your grace and invitation into relationship with you to be instructed in your word and to be guided into what is true. Thank you for your church and your people that you're building up and pray this morning as we come and we are gathered here that you would open up our hearts, that you'd bring comfort to those who've had weeks of disruption and that by your Spirit, you would bring disruption to those who have been far too comfortable. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. For the early monks, like St. Augustine, noon was a rough time of day. It was then when the heat was at its hottest point, when the stomach was growling from a day's fast, when much of the work and prayer had been done, yet it was... You're fully aware that there was still a half day yet to be done. It was this point, the noonday time, this precise time of weariness where the devil would insert in doubts and frustrations and temptations to give up. It was then that they would begin to be sluggish, to be tempted toward complacency. These urges and temptations, the suffering of the moment became so prevalent in the life of the monks that it got a name, and this was called the Noonday Devil. The Noonday Devil is not just something that the monastics experience, but it comes in all of our lives. It comes every day. It comes every week. It comes every month and every year and every life. Um, Several years ago, there was a, a commercial, I think it was progressive. They had this camel coming through the office, and what was the camel announcing? It was what? It was, what day is hump day? The middle of the week, we need a camel to pump us up because we're all so sluggish. Does anybody in here get their best work done at two o'clock? No, you need another cup of coffee, or for Mike, you need his seventh cup, or you need a nap if you're like TJ. No one does their best work at two. And we have a name for it if you even think about the noonday devil in a lifetime. You hit the middle of your life and what do we call it? A midlife crisis. Oh my gosh, have I done anything in my life? Does any of this matter? And in comes the doubts. The noonday devil is real and active. And paired with our fatigued and wandering flesh, it can create quite a killer duo. Whether that is extraordinary suffering that you're working through or just the ordinary trudging along, the repeated mundane tasks, we become tempted. And when we don't notice that and do anything about that, we become sluggish in our faith and pulled towards doubt, and at its worst, we drift away completely. And C.S. Lewis talks about the greatest form of sluggishness, which he calls slothfulness, or the vice of acadia, or sadia. The greatest form of this sluggishness today actually comes in the form of busyness, which you might think is a paradox, or a contradiction, but he says that the busy heart actually exposes this neglect to the things that matter most. You're actually being sluggish in the things that matter most, namely your walk with God and the relationships closest with you, and you get wrapped up in the busied, hurried pace, the tasks all around. And this is what the pastor of Hebrews is warning us about. It's a far different situation than the people actually receiving this letter, and we'll get to some of that. There are all sorts of theological questions in this passage, but at its heart, and we'll work through some of the scary stuff, but at its heart, this is written from a pastor who wants you and I to have, as you see the title of the sermon, a full assurance of the hope that is ours. And he knows what keeps us from experiencing that full assurance is sluggishness in our faith. He says here at the end, we'll begin with the end, this is what we desire for each of you, to show this diligence, this earnestness toward your assurance until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is actually written for our encouragement. Wherever you're at, it's written for your encouragement to keep pressing on. And as we'll look at this text, we'll do so through three different points. Um, I did not have these ready by Monday, and I did not have notes for you, because I wasn't done. I hadn't even started. Um, But now I'm ready. Uh, The three points are, we're going to look at the situation, then we'll look at the warning, and then we'll look at the better things. The situation, the warning, and the better things. And I want to review a bit of the situation generally going on in Hebrews um, for those who haven't been with us. And then I'll address some of the new particulars that the pastor is addressing here. The layout of Hebrews really follows the same pattern all throughout. In chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better. This is the it's the, the, the series name is better, Jesus is better than the angels, he's a better messenger. And every one of these sections comes with a Jesus is better, and so then it comes with a warning. So, don't neglect the better message. And then chapters three and four, Jesus is better than Moses. And if he promised the people rest in the promised land and they neglected him, how much worse off will it be for us if we neglect the rest that comes in Christ? And then chapters five through seven, Jesus is the better high priest, which we began last week. He is the, the high priest who reconciles us to God, and if they rejected the high priest then, how much worse off will it be? And here's the warning, for those who reject the real reconciliation of God in Christ today. And then chapters eight and ten, as Jesus is the better sacrifice and he offers the better covenant. And if they neglected that, how much worse off? And I think, actually, you think this warning is a bit frightening. I think chapter 10 packs a bigger punch. And so it's the same situation. They are tempted and pulled. These are Jewish converts to the Christian faith, and they're facing persecution from Nero in Rome. And it, and it seems that a way to avoid this suffering is to just go back to Judaism. And the author and the pastor of Hebrews is pleading with them, no, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Don't go back. And I don't know many of most of your stories, but I, I, I don't think that you will be tempted to go back into Judaism. I doubt that's your specific temptation, but I, what I do know of, of all people, and maybe what I know of some of you in your former life is you've experienced that temptation, that pull towards abandoning the faith that you've come to love. And how does that falling away, how does that drifting back happen? And this is the specific thing here that the pastor's getting at. How does it happen? You become dull of hearing. That word dull is the same word sluggish, which is used in verse 12 you become sluggish in your commitment to Jesus. In other words, you do nothing. Um, a few years ago at our national RUF conference, they brought in a, a speaker, and he was actually working through chapters 10, 11, 12 of Hebrews. And this is what he said. He said, do you want to know a surefire way to not be a Christian in five years? Do nothing. Don't pray, don't obey, don't read, don't go to church, don't talk about your faith, don't repent, don't try again after failure. Let no one know about your real life. And this is the big one. Always let your circumstances determine what's true about God. Do nothing and you will surely walk away. And this is what's happened here. They're stuck in these elementary doctrines. They ought to be teachers, it says, yet they still need someone to come and teach them the basics. They need the milk, and they ought to have been moved on to solid food. And and there are specifics, and he kind of rattles off some of them in the first three chapters about the differences in the elementary doctrines and these mature doctrines. And you can go and learn about those things, and it's interesting to read what people think. But it's not really… for us to like grade ourselves, okay, have I, am I mature, have I moved on to the laying on of hands, and have I done, that's not the purpose of this, again, this is a pastoral letter waking us up to our slumber. The main point, no matter the specifics and how you dice it out, the main point remains the same, is the noonday devil at work in your heart? Have you become captive to him? Uh, Richard Lovelace, he was a, a seminary professor, an author, and he was Tim Keller's mentor. And so I read a few of his books, and he makes this point. He says, there's a deep connection between our understanding of justification, i.e., our reconciliation to God in Christ... Ie chapters five through seven of Hebrews and what the author is saying here. There's a deep connection between our understanding of this salvation in Christ and our experience of sanctification, our growth in Christ, our maturity. He says the conscious cannot accept one without the other. It cannot accept justification without sanctification. Our assurance of salvation. Which is the problem here for Hebrews, which we'll get to in a bit. But our assurance of salvation, which penetrates and cleanses our consciousness of guilt, that assurance is impossible to obtain without, in some measure, being committed to spiritual growth. It's not that salvation is impossible to obtain. Your assurance of salvation is impossible to obtain. Your conscience will eat you alive. He says, when we attempt to claim justification without a clear commitment to sanctification, our conscience becomes outraged. Do you hear what Richard Lovelace is saying? I think it's very similar to what Hebrews is saying. People, we have been reconciled to God by a great high priest. We have been given a greater message. We have been offered a better rest. We want you to be assured of that. And you ought to be, and you can be, if you weren't being so sluggish. They're stuck in the elementary principles, they're still needing milk, still needing someone to teach them the basics, and their conscience conscience is outraged. But they will move on to better things, it says in verse 3. But first, they have to be warned. They have to be warned, the second point, the warning. Um, I want you to think about a wine sommelier. I think that's how you say it. I get it mixed up with sommelier pirates, or so the pirates of Somali. is that right? What, Somali and Somalier? Okay, wine sommelier, I've never had one. Um, they're probably a bit out of my price range. But I, 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 know, I know a bit about them, or I've read a bit about them, that sommeliers know everything about wine. They know the smell, they know the tastes, they know the notes, they know where it's from, the soil it's in, if it's from France or California, they know everything, they know what to pair it with, they'll serve it to you, they'll help you through the experience. They know everything. And what I've learned um, is as they go through the training to become a Somalia, and it makes makes sense, they don't actually drink the wine. Um, You know, you get rather drunk pretty quick, I'd imagine, and you a few weeks in, you'd feel pretty crummy, and a few years in, you'd be an alcoholic. So they don't drink the wine. They just put it in their mouth and kind of swish it around. They get the taste, and then they spit it out. I want you to think about a wine sommelier as I reread these few verses, which are maybe some of the most debated and difficult verses in the New Testament. But I want you to imagine the person who knows all about God, who even pours out the wine for others, who can teach others about God. Those who have tasted the wine, they, they smell it, They've been around it all the time, but they've never drunk it. This is the person being described in verses 4 through 6, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. They know all about the faith, the goodness of the new covenant in Jesus opposed to the old of Moses. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. A lot of people think this is in reference just like the heavenly gift was the manna in the desert. The heavenly gift is the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. They've tasted of it. They've partaken in communion. They've come to the corners. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've not been indwelt by, but they've shared in the Holy Spirit. This could be the fellowship of the saints and the different means of grace. They've tasted the goodness of the word. They've come and they've sat under the teaching of the scriptures. They've experienced the powers of the age to come. This is in reference to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is actually what Jesus teaches at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, some will come to me on that last day and say, Lord, Lord, and what will they attest to? Look at all the wonderful things we did. We prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus turns to them and said, I never knew you. The powers of the age to come have been theirs. They taste it. These are the Christian sommeliers. They know all about it. They've swished it around in their mouth, but they've never digested it. They've never drank it. What do you notice is not on this list? What does it not say? It does not say it is impossible in the case of those who have repented of their ungodly ways and have turned and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Which is why it is our position that the pastor here is not describing converted Christians who have drank the wine, to keep to our analogy, but is describing the wheats, the weed among the wheat, is describing the goats among the sheep. Now smart people disagree with us here, but here is why we think that. Um, because salvation is not ours to earn, therefore it cannot be ours to lose. Seven years ago, um, we adopted a dog, and uh, um, it became blind, and it began, at this point, our son Brayden was a, just a baby, and it started walking over Brayden, and it um, Started escaping and getting lost, and people would show up at our house. And our dog, our blind dog, has escaped down the street. Um, and it had gum disease. That's a different problem. Doesn't not connected to its blindness. That's just our lack of upkeep. But it just was not a good dog. Um, we didn't like it anymore. And so, Kim Duro, earmuffs. Close your ears. I'm sorry. And I don't say this dog's name anymore um, just to keep it depersonalized in what we've done. Um, And so we killed it. No, I'm kidding. We did not kill it. But we did emotionally kill it. We emailed the place where we adopted him and asked if they'd take dogs back. Yes, I really did that. You can judge me. I know, Kim. You're judging me. And uh, they showed up that afternoon and um, they were not very happy and they took this unnamed dog back and that's not what's happening here. God does not work that way. He does not return whom he has adopted. And so Jesus says in John 6, I've come to do the will of my Father who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. This is a great comfort. And so then I've been asking, so then what's the point of this warning? So let's look back closer to the text. In verse three, as I said a minute ago, he says, and this we will do if God permits. In other words, we're gonna move on from these elementary doctrines together. And then the next verse, if you really read it and read it and read it, it seems a bit random. Unless unless the pastor is anticipating some sort of question which they must have all been thinking and asking. And this is what I think is going on here, which many people that I read this week preparing for this think is going on here. It's almost as if the Hebrews are asking okay, so we will move on to maturity, but what about Joe and Susan, those people that used to be with us but have left? Will they move on with us? No, it's impossible. It's impossible. They've tasted and they shared in the Spirit and the fellowship of the Scriptures and they've gone back. They, they can't be restored. See, the water came, and see, you've been nourished, but for them it just bore thorns and thistles. Um, one one scholar puts it this way: though this is a hard passage to fathom, you've got to bear in mind the pastor is speaking hyperbolically and not technically. We know through our own experiences, my own experience. And from examples in the Bible that God leads anybody to faith, even hard-hearted people like us and like these people. And what this, what this scholar is saying is don't form your systematic theology from this one verse. Don't lose hope over your friend or over your son or over your mom. Don't lose hope from people in your life who've walked away from the faith and conclude, man, this passage seems to say God's done with them. the scholar goes on to say, remember, we're talking about the first century when becoming a Christian could result and did result in being put out of the synagogue, shunned in society and basically divorced from your family. If someone had braved all that and tasted all the heavenly gifts that being part of Christian community offered and still turned back, it seems as if he's saying that they would be crucifying again him in their heart. It'd be the only way they could possibly res- be restored back into their Jewish community. To say, you know what, Mom and Dad? I think you were right. Jesus is a heretic, and he did not raise from the dead. I remember talking to the Kunkies about this, um, and I think there's so much similarity um, in other, others who have been overseas I think they just understand and grasp what's at stake when someone leaves a faith like Islam and becomes part of the Christian community. You are not just leaving this, like, we're so individualistic. This, for us, for most of us, it's just this individualistic choice and I can return. But for them, they are leaving everything they know, their financial security, their family, their lifestyle, their diet, their practices, their dress, their whole life. They're saying, Mom and Dad, Brother, Sister, Adios, I'll never see you again. And they go and go into this new community. Imagine if that person then goes back into their old community. How badly would they have to put down Christ? to get back in, if they'd even let him back in. And then the pastor's saying, could you imagine that that would happen again? Unlikely. Unlikely. This is a very different situation than someone like me who grew up in a Christian home and wandered into rebellion and chaos and stopped going to church for many years, I don't think it would have been biblical for my parents to have given up on me and used this verse as a passage. And they didn't. So don't let this passage say what it's not saying. Don't lose hope. But it is a warning to be sure. It's still in here. It's a heart check, it's a wake-up call. Have you become sluggish? All right, so let's land the plane here. The third point, better things. This is a word of encouragement. Um, I think we all experience, have experienced, or a lot of us have experienced the joy of booking a trip, something definitely on days like this. This is a good day to book your summer trip. Go find something fun to do in six months, Um, and and anticipate it for those six months. Uh, A few years ago, for our 10-year anniversary, we we went to Cancun, and we booked the trip probably eight, nine months in advance, and um, that was my best semester in RUF because you could tell me you didn't like me, and I don't care. Um, Everything could have gone amok, and it would have been all right. I'm going to Cancun. You can't get me down. Um, And so, you know, leading up to this trip, you start looking at pictures for us. We started drinking more margaritas to anticipate uh, what was to to come. Um, I'm mostly kidding. Um, (laughs) You start double checking and triple checking and quadruple checking that all the details are set, everything's in place. You know, you don't buy that trip and then kind of set it aside and never think about it again, never follow up on it again. And on the, alt, on the other side of that, the more that you do look at the pictures and kind of anticipate the trip, the more excited you get about what's to come. Okay, you get it. Um. See, the encouragement of this text is actually found in verse nine. So he says the scary thing. And then he says, but in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation so be patient. The promised inheritance is coming. And I love this, and I think many of us need to camp out in this verse for the week. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Again, the situation here is that these people were enduring serious suffering and a serious pull towards abandoning. They were considering giving up on, on everything that they've come to know and going back to their old way. And again, I don't think we're tempted toward going back to our Jewish roots. But here's how I do think we are tempted. When we've just changed our 37th unnoticed, unnoticed diaper for the week or we've just held our tongue for our coworker who's ticking us off. Or we've just acted honestly in the workplace, though it would have been easier to skirt, skirt the rules. Or we've just hosted our third neighborhood barbecue trying to get to know our neighbors, and yet again only six people showed up. Or we've just said start sorry to our kids for the hundredth time because we just keep Snapping at them, or we've just served this person again and brought them a meal, or we've just done this and we've just done this, and does anybody see it? Does anybody see me? If you dwell on that, it'll make you want to walk away. Thinking that everything is done in vain and that no one cares. And so the pastor says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown. He wants you to be assured of what is coming. And he sees you now wherever you're at. He sees you moving back toward your spouse or toward your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or your friend. He sees that labor. He sees that little bit of faith that you're still holding on to, and the Spirit intends to blow wind into your sails. Be patient and wait. Be patient and wait something far greater than cancun is coming something far more fulfilling than anything you've ever experienced on earth is coming it's on the horizon do not be sluggish there is a god who sees you who knows of your work who knows of your love and of your love continue to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise